For some reason, all day today before sitting down to record this episode, I've had that intro to Star Trek playing in my head. You know the one, William Shatner, when he's saying, Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Well, this is a different kind of space, I suppose, where the vessel is the far middle, and we've got a mission, all right, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before, and thanks for riding along, constant listeners. October 18th, that is the day of our episode 126 premiere. It's the birthday of a legend who has many connections to prior sports dedications on the far middle. And how more far middle can you get than that? We dedicate this episode to the October 18th birthday boy, Mike Ditka. This sports dedication might be a record for connections within the far middle. Let's count some of them off. First, most people do not realize that Ditka was not born in Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, which of course is just outside of Pittsburgh, but instead he was born in Carnegie, Pennsylvania. And that area was home to your host for decades as both a kid and an adult. Oh, and by the way, his original last name was not Ditka, but Disco, and that's spelled D-Y-C-Z-K-O. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And that's Ukrainian in origin, and it was modified to make it easier to pronounce in America. Another connection, we dedicated episode 109, not that long ago, to Pete Maravich and his coach and father, Press Maravich, who was from Aliquippa, Pennsylvania, the same Aliquippa where Ditka grew up and attended high school. So guess who Ditka's high school coach was? That's right, Press Maravich. Ditka was a three-sport star at Aliquippa, and he planned to become a dentist. Can you imagine having a root canal performed by Dr. Mike Ditka? But off the pit, he went to play football and, I suppose, to learn about dentistry. He was a three-sport athlete at Pitt, baseball, um, basketball, and, of course, football. He started on the uh, football team all three seasons, led the team in receiving all three years, and he also played linebacker, defensive end, and, believe it or not, punter. As a senior, he was named the team captain. He made it to the College Football Hall of Fame. Drafted by the Bears back in 1961, coming out of Pitt, and he later ended up having the opportunity to play with Gail Sayers, who was our dedication for episode 40, which was the Kansas Comets uniform number. And Ditka, of course, is in Canton, Ohio, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He was the first tight end to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame. He's an NFL champion. He won a title in 1963 with the Bears before there were Super Bowls. And he's also a three-time Super Bowl champion. He won a Super Bowl as a player. He won one as an assistant coach. And he won one as a head coach. So here's a little trivia for you to impress others outside of the far middle. Only two people in the history of the NFL won Super Bowls as a player, an assistant, and a head coach. I just told you that Mike Ditka is one of those two. Who's the other? Tom Flores. Now, speaking of Ditka's coaching career, he connects to episode 85, where we dedicated that episode to the Super Bowl winning 1985 Bears, and also to episode 46, with our dedication then to the 46 defense of Buddy Ryan, who was the defensive coordinator under Ditka, at least for a while, until they started trying to kill each other. So lots of far middle connections for a guy who you know will be a kindred spirit to the far middle, I mean, when your nickname is Iron Mike, 
what more needs to be said. 126 kicks off with a happy birthday to and a dedication to Iron Mike Ditka. And I hope uh, you enjoyed last week's lightning round. We covered what I think might have been a far middle record number of connections and topics in that episode. But this week, we're going to go back to the well, as in a deep dive to explore a great topic. As we enter into late October, it's, of course, peak football season that set us up well with the Ditka dedication. And I told you that Ditka is of Ukrainian descent. There's a war on there, as we all know. Every day in the Ukraine brings harsh reality, an unfiltered lens into military leadership, strategy, and tactics, particularly exposing those when they go wrong. And that is a great connection into the topic of the episode, which started back in September of 44, 1944, but really heated up into the worst of war in late October of 1944. So today we dive into the Battle of Hurtgen Forest, where the U.S. Army was exposed. It was exposed tactically, strategically, and with its leadership, and American soldiers paid dearly for all of it. A lot of us have a, a keen interest in World War II. I'm certainly one of those types of individuals. So when we read about it and study it, we're familiar with the European theater's bigger or more famous Allied campaigns. There's Italy and, and the march up the spine of Italy, uh, D-Day, of course, and Normandy right after it, Market Garden uh, with the airborne assault, Battle of the Bulge, right? And then, of course, there's that final push over the Rhine River and into the heart of Germany to end World War II, at least in Europe, once and for all. You've got movies and books and television series that have been dedicated to these battles and campaigns for, for decades. But there is a battle that's nestled in the middle of that chronology that I just went through that gets far too little attention. It was the worst performance in drubbing that the United States Army suffered in World War II. And you've also, by the way, got a famous infantry division with Pennsylvania lineage that's of interest to me, special interest, I'll say, that played a central role and unfortunately paid an epic price in the debacle. And that late 1944 campaign came to be known as the Battle of Hurtgen Forest. Revisiting and analyzing the battle, it's going to provide insights on leadership, on strategy, on tactics that remain relevant both on battlefields and in boardrooms today. So let's set the stage with a little bit of background. The Allies were pushing up against the German border in September of 1944. So in sight were the, uh, the gateway to the industrial Ruhr Valley, where a lot of German industry resided, cities like Cologne and Essen, and also the heart of Germany, and possibly a lot of the Allied command and soldiers on the ground had hoped the end of the war. So there was hope that the war was just about to end. And if you went a little further to the south on that front line, you saw a heavy force just inside western Germany uh, that was called the Herkenwald, and that was occupied by German forces, and it was cut through the middle by a stream that was known as the Kall, K-A-L-L. And if you think about the region, that forest, it's enclosed by a triangle, roughly, with the corners of the cities being Aachen and Duren, and then the town of Monschau being the uh, third sort of corner of that triangle. Now, the Hertgen Forest area was part of the Siegfried Line, and it had been prepared by German engineers for a prolonged battle. You had trees uh, through the forest that were carefully cultivated into very neat rows that you could see for, for hundreds of yards uh, through those, those rows. They were cultivated for decades. 
And those neat straight rows, they provided clear fields of fire that would prove to be deadly. You had mines that were densely laid on trails and uh, breaks in the woods, paths everywhere you could imagine. Pillboxes were built and set up to create uh, very efficient and very deadly kill zones. American leadership believed that for the advance to the Rhine River and through the Ruhr River first, then ultimately to the Rhine, to occur and then to get it deep into Germany, if those things were to continue, the Hurtgen Forest had to be entered and the far high ground within the forest area, the town of Schmidt, had to be seized. But the Allies and the Americans quickly learned that that wasn't going to be easy. Now, one of the, the crucial failings or root causes of the debacle that was the Hurtgen Forest, and you hate to say it, but it's absolutely true, was that American leadership was inept during that battle. And much of that blame can be attributed to the first army commander in the battle, which was Lieutenant General Courtney Hodges. Interestingly, Hodges' career up to the Hurtgen Forest was out of a Hollywood script. He was a Southerner. Um, he didn't make it through West Point. Legend has it. Um, he got booted out because he couldn't get past geometry. But he rose through the army ranks the hard way. He started out as a private in the army in 1905 and, and rose through those ranks. He earned two Purple Hearts in World War One, but he threw them away, discarded them, and get this, because he considered them, using his term, sissy. And Hodges' boss during the Hurtgen Forest battle, or ordeal might be a better term, was the legendary American General Omar Bradley, who prior to the war was Hodges' subordinate, and who still addressed Hodges as sir, despite that uh, reversal and who reported to who. So Bradley had tremendous respect for Hodges. Now, although Hodges was a very competent leader of the First Army through France and after D-Day. By late 1944, as you're getting into the Hurtgen Forest campaign, he was a mentally exhausted and spent individual. The scale of duties were just overwhelming him at the time. He made decisions slowly. He micromanaged. And worse, he would not visit the front line and tended to command from the rear with little information, or sometimes even worse yet, misinformation, because we all know that misinformation can be worse than no information. Now, Hodges would also you know, be a bit of a brutal boss. He would brutally demote subordinates, sacking them at the uh, first sign of a setback. That made those reporting to him very cautious in decision-making to the point often of being paralyzed. And it didn't help that uh, his staff was a bit dysfunctional with a lot of infighting among his direct reports. He was also a little archaic, maybe obsolete in his thinking when it came to tactics. He favored a mentality more representative of World War I than the current conflict of World War II and, and what it called for. He favored a tactics of straight on and smashing ahead. Those were his terms over things like flanking. Hodges and his staff thought also that the Germans were close to collapse. They felt that the fighting spirit, the fighting capability of the German army was basically on the verge of imploding, and that convinced him more of the need for blunt and direct frontal attacks, which was a, a big miscalculation. And Hodges saw the Hurtgen Forest, when he looked at it on the map, he saw it as a threat to his flank in his attempt to drive east toward the Ruhr and the Rhine rivers. But the density of the forest, if you would have thought that through or someone would have thought it through at the time, that forest was so dense that it made it highly unlikely that the Germans could amass enough armor and infantry to serve as a credible threat to flanking the Allied advance. Um, the historian Russell Wigley, he summed it up best. He said, quote, 
the most likely way to make the Hurtgen a menace to the American army was to send American troops attacking into its depths, end quote. And that's exactly what Hodges did. And no one under him had the confidence or the courage to question him ahead of time. So in late September 1944, you've got the U.S. 9th Division entering the Hurtgen Forest, hoping to outflank the city of Aachen to the northwest. After a few weeks, little ground was gained at enormous cost. 4,500 casualties were suffered to advance 3,000 yards. That's a casualty for every two feet of gained ground, and that's an attrition rate that soon depleted the fighting strength of frontline battalions in the 9th Division. Although the German defenders also paid a heavy price, the German high command in mid-October was confident the Americans would not be silly enough, foolish enough, to attempt another assault through the Hurtgen Forest. Field Marshal Modell, who was the commander of that area at the time, he understood how the forest neutralized Allied advantages when it came to mobility and air power and armor. But the Germans, they misread the extent of ineptitude and stubbornness of American leadership. And that's when the U.S. 28th Division enters the scene on the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest. The 28th Infantry was originally a Pennsylvania National Guard organization. Its original nickname, the Keystone Division, was derived from the uh, Keystone insignia on the uniforms, which, of course, is the emblem of Pennsylvania. The 28th had done it all in Europe leading up to the Hurtgen Forest, fighting, dying through the hedgerows of France right after D-Day in Normandy, Uh, They marched through Paris once Paris was liberated. They broke through the famous fortified defenses of the Siegfried Line. Yeah, the 28th crossed from France onto German soil in September of 44, having learned valuable lessons from prior campaigns, but also paying a high price in casualties. And they needed a rest. The rest was badly needed. So in late September, the 28th was moved into reserve in Belgium. Uh, Major General Dutch Cota, who enjoyed a stellar reputation till the Hurtgen, much like Hodge's reputation. He rested the 28th while focusing on rebuilding the ranks with inexperienced replacements and preparing for the next fight. But the 28th Division was the only corps in reserve after the failed attempt of the 9th Division to give the Hurtgen a go. So in late October, it was hastily brought forward and ordered back into action. And ironically, the 28th Division's motto was fire and movement, But the Battle of Hurtgen Forest presented a situation where the former fire was challenging and where the latter movement was often impossible. The 28th assaults into the Hurtgen on November 2nd after a few days of delay due to cold, cloudy, and wet inclement weather. And those conditions would be the norm for the duration of the Hurtgen Forest campaign. General Coda deployed three infantry regiments. It's the 109th, the 110th, and the 112th in the attack. And some tanks were attached to each, but the tanks were often useless in the terrain and weather, as we'll see. Now, American plans were for the 109th to aim for the village of Hurtgen to the northeast. The 110th targeted Raffelsbrand and Simonskall to the southeast, while the 112th, that was the the key um, sort of attack avenue, was to head east to then take the key objective of Schmidt after taking some smaller towns on its way. Now, that's three separate lines of attack if you're keeping score. And due to delays and launching attacks at other points across the wide front, the 28th and the Hurtgen, that would be the only attack occurring across the first few days of November, which meant the Germans could dedicate their full 100% attention on that battle. 
The first day of attack on November 2nd devastated the 110th right off the bat. Uh, they attempted to advance to the southeast and they were mowed down by machine guns and artillery. So zero progress was made. And by the end of the week, the 110th had lost effectiveness as a, as a fighting force. It was effectively decimated. The 109th made very limited progress until it ran into a dense minefield and it was stopped well short of Hurtgen, the village, and it uh, suffered heavy casualties as well. So two of the three avenues of attack were already either done or, or stopped in its track. The best American progress on November 2nd was the toughest of all, interestingly, which was the 112th in the middle. And it reached the village of Vassenach on the way to the ultimate objective of Schmidt. By the next day, the Americans in the 112th, they traveled down the ravine to that call stream. They traversed up the stream after crossing it, and they climbed the opposite bank toward Schmidt. Germans were so surprised to see the Americans that uh, they fled in haste. And by late afternoon on November 3rd, the Americans actually took the town of Schmidt. But snipers made movement in and out of Schmidt and around Schmidt impossible, and it was extremely tough to reinforce the position, especially with, with armor. 30-ton Sherman tanks just couldn't make it down and back up that muddy, narrow, and steep call trail. Field Marshal Modell and the Germans were initially surprised by the attack. As I said, they didn't expect anything like this, thinking that the Americans would be too smart to try an assault into the impenetrable forest. And ironically, at commencement of the 28th attack, Modell and his staff were conducting a map war game exercise to play out a hypothetical American campaign in the area. So Modell was in a position to respond quickly, and respond quickly he did. He sent some officers to the front. He kept others back at his headquarters to monitor and manage the battle. Cloudy weather helped him out. It negated Allied air power, and the Germans were able to quickly move troops and tanks to the outskirts of both Schmidt and the village of Hurtgen. The Americans in Schmidt, they were too few to handle the coming counterattack. They were also oblivious to the threat. They thought, again, the Germans lacked enough remaining armor to mount an attack. And as a result, the Americans were also short of anti-tank equipment and mines. General Coda, he remained far from the front lines, out of touch with developments. And he thought at that point in time, the battle was already won. He was definitely incorrect in that assessment. In the morning of November 4th, it delivered a strong dose of reality. German artillery opened on Schmidt. Tanks blew apart the town, building by building. And you had screaming German infantry surging toward the undermanned Americans. The Americans were routed in complete disarray and fled. Schmidt was back in German hands by noon of the 4th. Some of the routed American forces regrouped at a nearby small town. Uh, which was between the call stream and Schmidt, and a few Sherman tanks arrived up from the nearly impassable call trail. Call trail was the only avenue, by the way, for reinforcement and supply, but it was, again, a muddy, narrow mess. Engineers worked continuously and bravely to make it barely passable for tanks and anti-tank equipment to get up to the front uh, where the fighting was. A tank broke down on the trail and impeded progress for days until it was finally shoved over the ravine to get things moving again. And the pace to traverse the trail was excruciatingly slow, and the route was lightly defended and vulnerable to continuous German attack through the campaign. At the time when the desperate Americans needed leadership the most, frankly, they didn't get it. 
General Cota, again, he was far from the front. He was often confused. General Hodges, above him, showed up at Cota's command post, went on a tirade, and an intimidated Cota was sending orders to the front line for Schmidt to be retaken at once and to roll on. That was the term he used. Obviously, the detached American generals, they had no clue as to the critical state of their troops or the battle. By November 7th, the small town that Americans had regrouped in behind Schmidt to the west of Schmidt had fallen, and the call trail was under heavy attack, making an attempted night retreat by the Americans not just deadly, but also extremely difficult. It wasn't until the next day, the 8th of November, that Generals Eisenhower and Omar Bradley they became worried enough to show up at Dutch Coda's headquarters, and Eisenhower's comment to General Dutch Coda, quote, well, Dutch, it looks like you got a bloody nose, end quote. That was an understatement. The first winter storm hit on November 9th. There was a truce. I found this to be really interesting. The Germans and Americans entered into a truce to allow the American wounded to be evacuated across the call stream and up the trail. And finally, the decimated 112th was off the front line. Uh, the 110th, as I said, was possibly in worse condition. It was reduced to less than 60 infantry, including reinforcements. Just an amazing rate of attrition. Of the over 2,000 Americans who set foot east of the call stream during this battle, only 300 managed to make it back to the Western Bank. And in about a week of battle, the Americans suffered over 6,000 casualties, to the Germans 3,000. The reputation of General Dutch Coda, it went from hero prior to the Hurtgen to inept leader after. The most likely explanation as to why he was not relieved of command after that battle was that the prior purges by General Hodges and the recent Hurtgen combat losses, it just simply drained the depth of officers. There was no one able enough to replace Coda. But that still wasn't enough for Allied command, the American generals, including General Hodges, they didn't learn, and for months they continued to throw troops into the meat grinder of the Hurtgen Forest. Next up was the 22nd Infantry Regiment. That regiment was commanded by Colonel Charles Lanham, and Lanham led from the front to the point of recklessness. Many considered him brilliant, but also crazy, but nobody, nobody questioned his courage. He expected a lot out of his officers, and here's a quote from him just to give you a feel for what his expectations were. He said, as officers, I expect you to lead your men. Men will follow a leader, and I expect my platoon leaders to be right up front. Losses could be very high. Use every skill you possess. If you survive your first battle, I'll promote you. Good luck. Wow. <laughs> the 22nd started 18 days of hell in the Hurtgen on November 18th. And after three days, the regiment lost its three battalion commanders, and the attrition rate among rifle company leaders was over 300%. By the end of the sixth day, the regiment suffered a 50% casualty rate. Yet the regiment fought on, suffered more than 2,800 casualties to advance just over 300 yards a day. One soldier fell for every two yards of ground that was gained. Casualty rate was a staggering 86% of normal regiment strength. And there is an interesting facet to the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest that I wanted to share with you, and it involves dams or damned dams, I might say. American leadership, they spent years after the battle because they received a lot of criticism about their decisions and performance during the Hurtgen Forest. They spent years after that battle defending their decisions to enter the forest to begin with. 
And one of the most popular explanations that you heard from American leadership after the war as to why they entered the Hurtgen was the need to secure two forest dams that controlled the water level of the Roar River flowing northward, which sat to the east in between the Allied Army and the Rhine River. So you had to cross the Roar to get to the Rhine. And the concern was the Allies thought that they could not attack eastward to the Rhine as long as the Germans held the dams and could threaten to flood the Roar River Valley by basically either busting the dams or, or letting all the water through. But General Hodges, he made no plans prior to battle to capture the dams on the Roar, just inside the Hurtgen Forest. Dams were apparently the key to the river, but you wouldn't know that going into the battle when you looked at the battle plans. And it would take prolonged battles in the forest by several divisions before Hodges even ordered an attack against the dams. Hodges didn't press for air attacks on the dams until late November, and those failed, by the way. And by mid-December, months after the Americans entered the Hurtgen, a ground assault on the dams was launched. It wouldn't be until February of 1945. It took months and months until the Allies controlled the dams and could land on the eastern bank of the Roar River and then ultimately get to the Rhine. Yeah, American leadership blundered by not proposing an easier avenue of approach to get to those dams southeast of the Hurricane Forest, which would have allowed Hodges to, to seize those dams and then clear the terrain downriver. The Battle of Hurricane Forest didn't have to be if the dams were the key objective. All the slaughter, the misery dragged on till the end of 1944 in December when the Americans finally pulled out of the forest. But by that time, Allied attention was fixed on German Field Marshal von Rundstedt's breakthrough in the Ardennes, what we know today to be the Battle of the Bulge. When it was all said and done, 120,000 American troops were deployed in the Battle of Hurtgen Forest, suffering 33,000 casualties. Combat fatigue, pneumonia, and trench foot they claim 9,000 of that gruesome toll of 33,000 casualties. Soldiers unbelievably lacked sufficient boots. They lacked winter clothing, no hot food. Um, dry cover was almost non-existent. Men spent long nights frozen in foxholes. So that American domination of logistics and supply that was enjoyed throughout the war, it failed miserably in the Hurtgen. The campaign absorbed enormous resources. It destroyed morale. It weakened the American front, set the stage, frankly, for the initial German success in the Battle of the Bulge. The worst American setback in the European theater, it effectively prolonged the war. Historian uh, Carlo Deest saw the American performance in the Hurricane Forest as the most ineptly fought series of battles of the war in the West. I have to agree. Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway, was in that vicinity during the battle he referenced uh, World War I, which he knew well, by describing the Hurtgen Forest as Passchendaele with tree bursts. And Colonel David Hackworth, who was a battalion commander during the Vietnam War, he called the Hurtgen Battle one of the most costly blunders of World War II. Because it was disastrous and because we tend to best remember the victories, right? History is written by the victors. The Battle of Hurtgen Forest, it's been virtually forgotten today. It's only briefly mentioned in the documents of the memoirs of Generals Eisenhower and Bradley, and many historians had decided to overlook the campaign. The battle, as we said, should have been avoided, and its lessons, they should be remembered if we're to honor those who paid the ultimate price, and thousands of Americans paid that ultimate price. So when you do an assessment, you do a root cause analysis, 
what are those takeaways, those learnings? Well, the Battle of Hurtgen Forest, I think it provides six key lessons. First one, leadership matters. And poor leadership is going to negate inherent advantage. The generals, Eisenhower, Bradley, Hodges, Collins, Coda, they all failed to understand the strategic irrelevance of the forest and the ability to deal with it and avoid it, frankly, by flanking to the southeast. Hodges, he's applying obsolete tactics and he loses composure at the worst possible times. And then both Hodges and Coda, they lead from the rear. They fail to grasp the frontline situation as events are unfolding. That compounds mistakes, that adds and sort of creates new mistakes. Lesson number two, preparation, homework. Those two things are prerequisites to success. But the Allied command, they went into the Hurtgen unprepared. They didn't do their homework. They had no clear agreement on why they were even there to begin with. A simple reconnaissance of the call trail ahead of time, that homework would have warned of its challenges and its inability to deliver supply. Much was made, as we discussed, of the need to capture the dams on the Roar to the southeast of the Hurtgen as justifying the need to go into the forest and for the battles. Yet there was lack of clarity before and during the battle on the intended timing of dam capture and the impact the dams would have on flooding of the downstream river and also lack of clarity and agreement on alternatives to address the dams as we discussed, including flanking and securing them that way or bombing them. Third lesson. Avoid terrain and environment that's going to neutralize your strengths. Now, this one's obvious, right? Since the time of Sun Tzu, strategists understood the importance of picking the proper field of battle. Yet the Allies, they chose the worst place for the battle. And the Hurtgen's thick woods and ridges and ravines and lack of roads, the mud, the weather during the campaign, all those things eliminated the Allied superiority in the key metrics of air power and mobility and armor. And as we discussed, tanks, they were largely useless until late in the battle. Air power was hampered by cloud cover throughout much of the battle. The fourth lesson, supply chain. And weakness in supply chain, it's going to hamper success in modern warfare as well as in modern economy for that matter. That call trail, it was the primary lifeline for Americans on the front line for much of the battle. Yet that trail was too steep, too narrow, too muddy and too prone to German attack. Crucial artery of movement for the campaign, simply too fragile to feed a victory. The fifth lesson, success demands the teams have the proper tools and equipment. One of the Allies' greatest strengths during the war, logistics, it failed miserably during the Battle of Hurricane Forest. Soldiers were deprived of the basics, could have been hot food, winter gear, boots, all of the above. And the failing to equip troops with the essentials, it resulted in thousands of avoidable casualties. And then number six, last, you underestimate your adversary's capacity and will, you do that at your own peril. The Allies in late 1944, they were too overconfident. They ripped across France. They were now inside Germany. The industrial roar was within reach. And the fighting spirit of the German army was thought to be poor. A blunt and direct assault into the Hurtgen, it would be easy and unresisted. Germans benefited from such ignorance and foolishness, which carried on beyond the Hurtgen and bled into the battle of the bulge. Yes, the Hurtgen forest was a battle from hell, a disaster Allied leadership should have seen coming. Let's end this episode on a lighter note, remembering an album about something else out of hell 
and a huge success no one could have seen coming. This week back in 1977, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell album was released to an unsuspecting public. Everything pointed to this album being a flop. The origins of the theme of the album tie back to a musical that dealt with the future and with Peter Pan, of all things, written by Jim Steinman. The artist Meatloaf, he was not, let's say, a prototypical rock star when it came to physical appearance. And the key song of the album ran over 10 minutes in length. That's not a good thing if you're looking for radio play. But it had some massively important things going for it. Meatloaf had a voice that had no equal, great stage presence live, and the story that the album told was compelling and relatable to a lot of people. And the genius Todd Rundgren, he played guitar on the album as well as uh, producing the album, so he was an integral part of the effort. Now, this record was turned down by numerous labels until Rundgren's company picked it up, and it struggled for months after release, and then it took fire, sold over 17 million copies. We close with that 46 minutes of unexpected masterpiece that is the Bat Out of Hell album. Hope you find your version of Paradise by the Dashboard Lights this week. Talk to you soon. Thank you.